Let me pray for us and we'll get into what we're going to talk about today. God, our Father, uh, we come to this time with so many things swirling in our brains. I pray that you would allow us to hear from you and to uh, know uh, how deeply loved and cared for we are. Uh, God, I, I pray that you would allow any barriers that are existing in our life right now to be taken down. Uh, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so t today we're going to talk about something that is a pretty huge topic, and you don't have to be a religious person to know what I'm talking about. It's something that all of us have felt, uh, will feel, or are probably feeling right now in some way or another. It's something called guilt. Uh, have you ever been like somewhere randomly uh, and then just out of nowhere thought about something you did like seven years ago and just felt guilty? Uh, I think most of us know what guilt feels like. Guilt is this feeling of having done wrong or failed in an obligation coupled with the awareness that you have been found out or you will be found out. I remember one of the first times where I said, man, like I, this is like guilt personified. I was uh, not the smartest driver when I was about 20 years old. This is why insurance companies make uh, the rate so much higher for young men uh, because we are, I think the clinical definition is stupid. I think that's the, <laughs> the term. And uh, I was with one of my boys, and we were driving back to school at Morgan State, and he told me, listen, instead of taking a turnpike, you should take uh, 95 because there's never any cops on the road. We were driving, and about 15 minutes into the ride, I was like, yo, you're right. There's no cops on the road. I haven't seen one yet. And I had a, a Mitsubishi Galant that I thought was a Ferrari, and I was driving this joint 110 miles an hour, double the speed limit. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a cop. Instantly, my stomach sank. I grabbed the steering wheel with two hands. I started hyperventilating and breathing. And I was like, yo, forget the cop. When my pops finds out that I was doing 110 miles an hour, I'm going to die. I had two decisions. I said I could, you know, pull over and face the facts, or I can keep going. And I kept going. Pulled off of the exit and miraculously got to a Best Buy parking lot and ran out of the car as fast as I could, stayed in the Best Buy for like two hours, watched a movie in the Magnolia Theater at Best Buy. Uh, I was terrified to come out because I was like, yo, J.O., if you get, come out and the cop like sees you and he recognizes you, there's no way you talk yourself out of 110. Like you could talk yourself out of 65 and a 55, but you ain't talking yourself out of 110. Guilt is that feeling that you have done something wrong with this awareness that you have been caught or you will be caught, and guilt wreaks havoc on your life. Now, guilt in my life has not just been limited to questionable and terrible driving decisions. Uh, I, I've also felt a lot of other guilt just from decisions I've made and people that I've hurt. Uh, I remember one time having a conversation with some people, and, uh, you know, maybe it's the, the, the day of the Internet, but thinking I'm more qualified to talk about things because I've Googled something once, um, and saying something that's just stupid. I won't even repeat it right now because you probably wouldn't listen to me for the rest of today if you knew how stupid it was. And the second those words left my mouth, I saw the effect that it had on the person and I was like, man, I'm an idiot. All of us know what guilt feels like when you do something wrong. And no doubt about it, you know 
It was wrong. Guilt is this feeling in your life when a friend stops talking to you because you betrayed their trust. They told you something in secret, and they asked you not to tell anybody else, and you did uh, some of the Christian people. You might have even disguised it as a prayer request for them. (laughs) And it comes back around that you told, and they stopped talking to you. You did something wrong, and now you are being approached for it. Guilt is when your coworker rats you out, or maybe you get written up at work because you were doing something in a gray area, and now you have to face the music with your boss. Uh, guilt is when you break your kid. Uh, you know, you, you, you love your kid, and uh, you are just way too hard on them one day, uh, and you just see them break right in front of your face, and you, you ask yourself a question, how could I be that bad and that harsh with this little beautiful human being? Uh, and you just see how much you've broken them, and you just feel so guilty. Uh, Guilt is when you break another promise to your spouse. Uh, And you said you would never do this again, and you did, and now you have to face the music and look at them in their face, and you feel that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Guilt is that feeling when you break a promise to yourself, and you are back in front of that website for the 19th time that you said you would never go on again. Uh, You're back uh, after a night out where you were seven seven drinks past sober, And you wake up the next morning feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt. Guilt is something that, religious or not, we all know what it feels like. As a matter of fact, guilt is the reason that so many people come to church, and guilt is the reason that so many people don't come to church. It's the common thread that all of us feel, and very few of us have good ways of processing and healing it. Now, before we get too far down the line, I do want to mention that To a certain degree, there is an aspect of guilt that is good. There's an aspect of guilt that's healthy that is more like conviction. And conviction is this awareness that we have done wrong so that we don't continue to do wrong things and call it right. But guilt oftentimes does not stop there at, at this awareness that turns us to God. Guilt oftentimes pushes us down and wreaks havoc on our life. Uh, I would even say that if, if we're not feeling some level of conviction in our life, then we're not able to do uh, the things that Scripture calls us to do. There's a Scripture in Romans 8 and 13 where it says to put to death the deeds of the body. And we're told that we, we need to be active in our life to fight against the things that are trying to kill us. Uh, you need to have activity in your life. You need to take ownership, and you need to be working towards trying to kill the things that are killing you. Now, But the problem with unresolved guilt in our life, not the healthy guilt that pushes us towards conviction and repentance, but the unhealthy guilt that locks us in, the problem that comes out so often is is fear. Nina Simone once said it best that, uh, I'll tell you what real freedom is to me, no fear. No fear. When's the last time you say that you can feel that in your relationship with God? Jesus said that he has come for us to have life and life abundantly. Uh, It's to free us of freedom. And so many of us are paralyzed by fears. There's a couple of fears that resonate with me that might also be true for you. The first is that I would be rejected by other people if they knew the real deal about me. So instead of being open and honest about my walk and where I'm at with people, and so many people have uh, even expressed this to me in different ways, and this is what keeps people kind of keeping stuff to themselves and playing their cards so close to their chest in, in the community groups and different things, is because we're just afraid of being rejected by other people. And if they knew the real deal, then they would reject us. 
So instead of being open and being able to receive other people, we're afraid of being rejected by them. Another big one is, I think we're all afraid of being punished by God. There's this weird thing that happens to people when they start to judge everything in their life based on God's pleasure or displeasure in them at the moment. So whether or not you got the job, whether or not your relationship is going well, whether or not uh, you got the apartment, you kind of feel like it all depends on whether or not God is happy with you at the moment. And you're afraid that when bad things happen to you, it's God punishing you for not doing something right. And that's just a really terrible way to go about life and, and spirituality, because if you read through Scripture, all throughout the Bible, some of the people that God loved the absolute most suffered the most. And other people who were far away from God were living life where the, everything was thriving. And you can't judge your day-to-day -day circumstances, uh, and you can't base God's love on your day-to-day -day circumstances. But guilt creates fear that God is punishing us. And here's a big one. Guilt creates fear that God will reject you, that one day you're going to stand in front of God and God is going to have your laundry list full of things to do that you didn't do, and you're going to be rejected. You're going to be the one on the outside looking in, and God is going to reject you. Now, there is a scripture in Romans 8 and 15 that talks about fear and what fear does in our life. And what God intends for us to truly have. And it says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, or Daddy, Father. We don't have to be slaves to fear of what our guilt does to us, but God wants something else for us. No fear. And only a child has that. Uh, a couple of days ago, man, I don't know if you ever, like, had a long day, you underestimated how tired you were, and you laid down on the couch, and you laid down, and you took just like a light, a nice long nap. That doesn't exist for me these days. I have a one-year-old, and uh, I was laying down. I'd just fallen asleep. We put Sesame Street on for them to just numb their brains and leave me alone. <laughs> and then I had just fallen asleep, and then I feel a tug on my face. Uh, my one-and-a-half-year-old grabbed my beard and shook me like I was... <laughs> a piece of candy, and uh, I looked at him like dazed and like, yo, who just grabbed my face like that? And he looks at me, and he just laughs. <laughs> who else has the boldness to just grab me by the face and shake me around and laugh in your face? If I were in the lobby after service and you see someone who grabs my beard and starts shaking me around, call the cops. Don't laugh at that point, because <laughs> that dude is crazy. When's the last time you felt that in your relationship with God? No fear. No fear that you have access to God, Abba, Father, that there is no fear that exists in your relationship. The only way you're going to get that is if we learn how to deal with our guilt. Now, there's a couple of ways that we normally, ordinarily deal with our guilt. Uh, we, the first one is uh, we bury it, or we try to bury it at least. Uh, we minimize away how serious something was. Well, uh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, everybody's doing it. Or we compare ourselves to other people and we say, you know what? It's not as bad as what they're doing. Uh, or altogether, we just rationalize it and say what we did was not wrong after all. Uh, bearing your guilt might work for the short term, but long term, it's, it's going to show up oftentimes in really inconvenient uh, ways. 
David talks about this in Psalm, where he talks about what happened when he tried to bury his guilt. In Psalm 32, uh, 3 through 5, it says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, certainly, I know personally what it feels like to try to bury the things that I've done, and it just never seems to go away. It just feels like there's this ache that never leaves me. And the result and the, the way that God wants us to approach him is not in trying to bury it, but in confessing and turning to him. There's another way that I love to try to deal with my, with my guilt in an unhealthy way, and is I beat myself up. Man, I'm, I'm like 45 and 0 against myself. Uh, I guess when we make my 45 and 45, I don't know how that works, but I love to beat myself up whenever I feel guilty. At the, underneath that is this belief, whether or not you acknowledge it, that the most important person to forgive you is you. So in, in doing so, what you're doing is you're trying to feel bad enough that you would finally forgive yourself for doing whatever you've done. But here's the problem about beating yourself up. When's enough? Physically, in our bodies, there are limitations to how much you can punish yourself. Uh, over this past summer, I started trying to work out again, and we were on sabbatical in Mexico City. And right down the street from our uh, Airbnb that we were uh, renting was this CrossFit place. Now, I hadn't, do I hadn't done a push-up in like a year. And if you know me, this story makes total sense. I signed up for CrossFit, not the beginner's class, that's for losers. I went to the... <laughs> Even though I hadn't worked out in a year, I deserved to be with everybody else. And normally, uh, most days, I kind of like, my, Jess would tell me, like, hey, listen, Jordan, just come home. Like, don't, you don't need to, don't pretend like you, you can do everything with everybody else. And most days, I followed her advice until one day, they changed the, the playlist from Ricky Martin to DMX. And I was like, yo, I was in that joint going so hard. What happened, uh, medical people, you guys would appreciate this, something in your body called lactic acidosis. <laughs> when, you have so, when you work out way too hard and it releases too much lactic acid in your bloodstream and it feels like you have the flu the next day. That next morning I woke up, still singing DMX in my head and could not, could barely move and I felt like I had the flu. Physically, there are limitations to how much you can punish yourself and how much you can exert yourself. Emotionally, there are no limitations. You can beat yourself up nonstop, forever, and never uh, be stopped by yourself in doing it. Now, there is a better way on how to deal with your guilt, better than burying it and pretending like it doesn't exist, or better than beating yourself up. That is what I want to spend the rest of the time here in Scripture talking about today. Uh, it comes to us in the book of John, as we are in this series on John, and it seeks to free us from guilt, which I admit is a tall task. Uh, John 1, 29 through 36. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, 
The one who you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, this is a really, really profound passage of Scripture where two times John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. John's original audience would have understood this to mean something significantly different than you and I might understand it today. Uh, And this is really the principal work of reading Scripture. The first question you always want to ask is, what was intended for the original audience of people? The original audience of people would have immediately associated the Lamb of God with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is actually coming up this Tuesday in Jewish communities. It's called Yom Kippur, and it's the holiest day of all the days in the Jewish uh, calendar. It's the day when a lamb was sent, and that lamb was sent into the woods to bear the sins of the entire community. Um, And every single year, the community's sins were completely wiped away. That lamb will be sent into the woods, never to be seen again, carrying away their sins, separating the sins from their people. When John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he's saying this individual in Jesus is taking all of your sins, all of them, and he's carrying them away, and you'll never see them again. The result of what you need to do is to look to Jesus, not look to yourself, not look to yourself to forgive yourself, not look to yourself to beat yourself up, but to look to Jesus. The first mention of the Lamb is in Genesis 22, and this is something that... uh, the original readers would have understood, um, and all throughout the Old Testament, you, you see this concept of atonement, that Jesus, uh, that there was a lamb who would die in place of everyone else, that punishment was deserved, and that punishment, that guilt, was put on the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from. They was put on a lamb, that lamb would run away. What Scripture is talking about is when we turn to God with our sin and what's called repentance, and hold on to that phrase. I know I'm dropping some pretty big terms, but uh, I'm going to unpack more of them uh, as we go on. It's carried away, and it's never seen again. And John says to look to Jesus, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from the world. It's also interesting that John doesn't say the sins in terms of counting them one by one, but the sin in totality of the world, that Jesus' death on the cross is enough for all of the sin in the world. Everything you've done, past, present, and future, you don't need to add to it by beating yourself up. Paul Miller talks about this nature of, for a lot of us, we underestimate the cross and its power in our life. And Paul says, in reality, uh, Paul Miller says, in reality, we are making a mockery of the cross by not going back to it. Isn't the blood of Jesus powerful enough to handle repeated offenses? The power of sin is received. The power over that sin is received at the foot of the cross. When you're beating yourself up, essentially what you're saying is the cross, yeah, that's okay, but it doesn't cover it. Uh, Before my wife and I had kids, uh, we went out one time with her friends, and we were going to go out dancing, and it was going to be a good night. And we get to the, to the spot, and there's a line out in front. Her friend whips out his black card and says, yo, how much for a table? I was like, oh, that's what we're doing? We got black cards out here? <laughs> a black card for the uninitiated is, uh, <laughs> it wasn't mine. So uh, it's a, like this, this exclusive Amex that only really top spenders have. 
And you could like go into a Porsche dealership and just buy a Porsche with the black card. It's that legit. Once he took that joint out, I'm like, yo, tonight's going to be a good night because <laughs> if this is how he's living, then we're going to live tonight. The whole night, my wife was like, you know, like trying to like, she was reading the menu and like, well, that's a little too expensive. I'm like, no, it's not. He got a black card. His black card could cover whatever we do up in here tonight. I think what most of us don't understand is that Jesus, his blood on the cross, can cover it all. It's like putting a black card down on some nachos. It's sufficient. It can cover it all. And we make a mockery of the cross by saying, Jesus, you are the Lamb of God, but you can't handle what I just did. Just because oftentimes we can't forgive ourselves. Another reason I think we struggle to really receive what John is talking about in the scripture is I just don't think we understand forgiveness as a concept. Now, the concept of forgiveness means that you can't just pronounce forgiveness without someone absorbing the pain of what happened. Whenever something serious happens, there needs to be someone who takes it, someone who absorbs it. Nothing serious can be forgiven without payment. Now, this is why the black community struggles so much, and this is why Black Lives Matter was created, because there were so many people, black and brown bodies, being killed, and nobody had to pay for it. Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, the list goes on and on and on and on. You've seen the T-shirts. There's too many people to name and to enumerate now. Their killer goes free or underpunished. What is that saying to people? That what they had didn't matter. Their life did not matter. Nothing serious can be forgiven without payment. Either they pay or we as a society pay because it's going to keep happening over and over and over and over again because nothing has been required to be paid. Nothing serious can be forgiven without payment. Now, this exists on a high level of extrajudicial murders and also on just your day-to-day interactions. If one of your friends borrows $100 from you and they don't have it to, to repay it, you can forgive them. But that $100 is not going to magically reappear in your bank account as soon as you say those words, I forgive you. What happens? You yourself bear up that $100 yourself. You are the one paying it on their behalf. To forgive requires payment. I've talked to so many people who have said, man, you know, if God is like all powerful, why doesn't he just forgive us? And I think that's because we don't understand what real forgiveness is. All, nothing serious can be forgiven without payment. Now, there's other reasons why we struggle to uh, really receive what John is talking about here in this text is, man, I, I just don't think that we understand the love of God. Well, I know we don't understand the love of God because the last thing that dawns on us oftentimes is God's incomprehensible love for us. So we don't think it's possible for our guilt to be freed because we don't even love ourselves. How could God love us? There's a parable in Luke 15. Uh, If you've been to church a little bit, you've probably heard it, called the prodigal son. And this story is about a father who has two children. One of them, often named the prodigal son, runs away with the money, spends it all crazily, wakes up one day completely broke, destitute, nothing to eat. And he thinks to himself about his father. When he thinks about his dad, he says, you know what? All of my dad's servants have enough to eat. I'm going to go home and ask my dad for a job. 
Oftentimes, what many scholars say is the missing meaning of this parable is not simply that he goes home, but that oftentimes the last thing that dawns on us, the last thing that dawns on us is that God would receive us back home as children. He never even entertained the concept that God would accept him back as a son. He says, maybe God will let me be a servant. And here's what uh, Sinclair Ferguson says about this parable. He says, although the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is probably the best known of all, of all Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact, the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. Many Christians go through, their, go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. The prodigal's suspicion. I don't think that is that good that he would let me come back without having to earn my way back. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what John is saying here is really profound in other ways because really by calling Jesus a Lamb of God, I also want to back up a couple of verses to verses 1 and 14. Jesus here is not God's delegate that he sends out. He's not God's ambassador that he sends out to do his dirty work. What John is telling us is that God himself is taking uh, our place, that Jesus is not just some random assignee of God's power and, and, and God's authority, but Jesus is God in the flesh coming to take all the things that we deserve. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we don't have a representation of God. We have God himself coming to take the impact of all of our sin on ourselves. And why did God do that? Because God loves you. Even though it's the last thing that dawns on us in our minds, that's what it's all about. On August 16, 1987, in Northwest Airlines Flight 225, there was a fatal crash. Uh, they took up the black box and tried to discover the, the reasons for the crash and went through a long investigation. But perhaps the most puzzling thing about this flight was that there was, in fact, one lone survivor. 155 people died, but one person survived, a four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. Cecilia survived because as the plane was falling, her mother got down, crouched around her, grabbed her, and when the plane landed, she absorbed the impact that Cecilia would have gotten. 155 people died, Cecilia lived. When the Bible tells us that God has come down in the form of Jesus and he is a lamb that's taken away our sin, it means that God left heaven. He lowered himself to us and covered us with his sacrifice of his own body to save us. So we're told here to look, to behold Jesus, this lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and to live a life in reality and in knowing what God has given us. Now, how do we access this? How do we do it? Uh, I mentioned earlier, it's this word called repentance, and it's a big word that many people bristle at when they first hear it, and it's because you don't understand it. We've been doing it all wrong. Uh, This past year, I went to the dentist, and um, like she taught me how to floss, and I was like, yo, I've been flossing wrong for 37 years. (laughs) Like, I didn't know you had to get like up in the gum, like the way they they turn it sideways. That's another sermon, but... um, (laughs) 
The way you've been doing something called repentance has been all wrong. Here's how most of us do what's called repentance. We start with the question, what did I do? Um, so uh, we, we think to ourselves, all right, what did I do? Um, for me, if I'm filling this out, I would say, you know what? I told a half-truth, uh, also known as a lie, because I didn't want someone to be upset with me. So I, I kind of sugarcoated something, or I just wasn't truthful and honest with the situation. The second question we ask after we answer, what did I do? We say, well, then who am I? And who am I? I'm a people pleaser. I'm weak. I'm too dependent on what other people think of me. Now, you guys know where this road is headed, straight towards beating myself up. The third question I ask is, what has God done? All right, so if I've lied and I'm a people pleaser and I'm weak and I'm nothing, I kind of feel like God just distanced himself from me. Right? Like God is waiting back and he's judging me for doing all these different things because I've already judged me. Then we answer the question, well, then who is God? God is just a judge. He's distant and he's waiting for me to fix it before I can come back into his presence. You can fill in the blank yourself with what uh, anytime you've prayed and asked God for forgiveness. Most of the time we start off with ourselves. This is a human-based a human-centered approach towards God and towards repentance, this will only lead you towards more and more guilt. Gospel Son of Repentance does what John is calling us to do here in this verse, to start with God, to look and to behold. Gospel Son of Repentance starts with, who is God? God is the one who comes to us in incarnation, gives himself to us, wraps his arms around us, and bears what you and I could never bear. That's who God is. The single most important question you will ever answer is, who is God? Always start there. Never start with you. If you start with you, you're going to end up missing the meaning of what God wants to do in your life, missing the entire meaning of Scripture altogether. The Bible is not about you. It ain't about me. The Bible is about God and what God has come to do to redeem his people. So who is God? God is a sacrificial Savior who demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's who God is. What has God done? Behold, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how you're supposed to start. So then who am I? I, I'm pursued, I'm redeemed, I am valued, I have value because of what Christ has done for me, not because of what I think of myself. And then what should I do? I should turn to God. I should ask God to make me hate the things that are driving me away from him. I should live in gratitude of the life that Christ has lived for me and the death that Christ has died for me. I should live in view of his sacrifice on the cross, letting that motivate my behavior, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude that Jesus has taken away all my sin. Now, this is a much different way and approach towards your, your spiritual journey, and I, and I truly hope that tomorrow morning, whenever you wake up to pray or to think about uh, your life and where you may be missing the mark, when you have that thought of guilt enter and creep into your brain, instead of guilt, instead of the human-based uh, version of repentance of starting with what you do and beating yourself up or trying to bury it like it didn't exist, you turn to God and you look and you behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Let me pray for us. God, our good and gracious Father, you are truly the one that we need to look to. You are truly the one that has made a way for our life to be one and whole with you. 
And Lord, I pray that those words, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Lord, that you would apply that to our hearts. You would allow us to be freed from the uh, this hamster wheel of self-forgiveness that we never seem to quite earn. Allow to look to you, not to ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.